Let's start again in John chapter 14. We've been teaching for a number of weeks on the subject, uh, the name of Jesus. And uh, we've been looking at um, a few scriptures out of John 14, 15, and 16 that Jesus spoke to the disciples on the last night that he was with them. Um, the, the theme of, of his last discourse that John gives us record of is because I go to my father. And we know that that means um, that Jesus is talking to them, even though they didn't know. They, they didn't understand what was happening before the fact. But Jesus is talking to them about the sacrifice that he's going to make for mankind, for the redemption of mankind on the cross, and then uh, being taken up into heaven afterwards. And so when Jesus is uh, giving them information on this last night that he's with them, I believe that he's saving the most important information, the best information for the last thing that he, that he shares with them. So as I said, we want to uh, pull out a couple of scriptures out of these uh, three chapters. Uh, John 14, verse 11. Uh, well, verse 12, really. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. You can't believe on him without believing on his name. He that believeth on me or in my name, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, if you've been with us before, you know that I have hammered on this week after week after week. This word ask does not mean request. He's not saying whatever you request in my name. This word ask means to call for, to demand, or to require. So he says, and whatsoever you shall call for, ask, or call for, require, or demand in my name, that will I do for this purpose, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask, same word, call for, require, and demand, Anything in my name, I will do it. Skip with me over to chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me. He's talking about relationship. He's talking about the relationship that will come through the new birth. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. My words abiding in you means simply walking by faith. Putting the word in your heart and living by them. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask. Call for required demand. What you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now notice next verse, verse 8. Herein, in other words, by you bearing fruit, by your will being, being accomplished in the earth, by you receiving and having what you will. Herein is my Father glorified, that you may bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Skip with me over to verse 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. That you should go and bring forth fruit. Now, a lot of people, times people look at that and say, well, yeah, but he's just talking to the apostles there. See, the apostles were chosen. The apostles were ordained. Well, notice what they were chosen and ordained for. To bring forth fruit. Now, it's real easy to get religious and say, yeah, that means people are going to have ministry gifts upon them. And they're going to go get people saved and, and do evangelistic work and all that other kind of stuff. And certainly that's true. But why would fruit mean anything different in verse 16 than it meant in verse 7? Or verse 8? No, he's still talking about the same fruit. He's talking about the fruit of you receiving in his name what you will. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. God doesn't want part-time fruit. That your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand in my name or ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Finally, chapter 16, verse 23 Jesus said, and in that day, talking about the day following the, the, his resurrection, the day of the new birth, the church age, in other words, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Now, this word ask is the word request. It's translated pray in other places. Uh, verse 26 is one place that's 
used and translated pray. This is a different word. So he's saying, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. In other words, he's saying, you're not going to pray to me in the, new, in the, the day of the new covenant. You've been looking to me for your supply. You've been looking to me to, to meet your needs and answer your questions and so forth. But when I'm gone to the Father, when that relationship is, is finished because of my sacrifice and my resurrection, he said, and in that day you won't talk to me about things. You won't ask me for help. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask. This word is the call for, require, and demand word. Whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand in my, of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto, up till now, you have asked, called for, required, demanded nothing in my name. Ask, call for, require, and demand. And you shall receive that your joy may be full. Now, folks, we've talked about this, uh, like I said, for I don't know how many weeks, several weeks. I get on a series and it's kind of hard for me to quit. But uh, for however long we've been talking about this, we've, we've approached it from different angles and talked about different aspects of this. And, and, uh, uh, and I want to bring about a different angle this morning, if you'll allow me to. Um, the thing that I want to, to point out this morning is, of all the things that we could say about Jesus, and of all the things that we could say about the Last Supper and Jesus' discourse and, and so on and so forth, we would have to conclude, I mean, any intelligent person would have to conclude that Jesus is talking about a new place of authority in his name. Because he's saying we'll do the same works that he did in his name. He's saying we can ask what we will of the Father and receive it in his name. He's saying that We'll pray in the day of the church age or the new covenant, our day. He's saying we won't pray to him, but we'll pray to the Father in his name. And the Father will give us whatever it is that we call for or require that our joy may be full. That had never happened before. They had no way to pray to the Father up until that point in time. They'd talk to Jesus. Jesus would pray about things and and Jesus would meet their needs. And that's the whole point that Jesus is making is that the day is coming. Very soon from the time that he said this, just a matter of a couple of, uh, couple of days, he said the day is coming where you'll have a relationship with God where you can get your prayers answered just like I get my prayers answered. It's a place or a new place of authority in his name. Amen? Now turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to understand some things about authority in his name. Genesis chapter 1 tells us the story of creation. There's a lot of things that we could point out. I don't want to take a, a lot of time, a whole lot of time this morning going through the individual details of the creation and so forth. But I want you to see some things. Moses is the one that is given this account by God. And, uh, and as we understand it, God translated or uh, that's not a good word to use. God dictated word for word the first five books of, of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. There is, uh, there's something different about those books because of the way that they, those, uh, the, the truth was given to Moses. There, there's a lot of things that are, that are interesting to me. I don't know if they're of interest to everybody. But, uh, but even the Jews recognize that there's a difference in the first five books of the Bible than, uh, than the other uh, books of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. As such, God is specifically telling Moses, this is what I want mankind to know. This is what I want mankind to know about how things started. This is what I want mankind to know about the earth they live in. This is God's plan, God's specific word-for-word dictation about how things began. 
Now, let's read a couple of verses and get started on some things. And then, like I said, we'll, uh, we'll kind of take it generally. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was. This word was is translated uh, in other places. Most other places in the Old Testament became. And the earth was or became without form and void. And darkness moved upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The reason that I point out the, the uh, difference in the meaning of the word was to um, uh, the, the word became is because it wouldn't make sense that God would make something without form and void. How do you make something without form and void? Now, I know how you take something that's, that's in one form and, and create chaos out of it. But how do you make something without form and void? It, the indication is there was something else here, and then it became in a void or without form and void condition. Nevertheless, notice in verse 3, it says, And God said. Now, what is the thing that God's trying to get across to mankind? What does God want you to know about the creation of the earth? I wish that he'd given us some specific details. I wish he would have said, Now, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and for so long, this was what it was like, and then all of a sudden, things got messed up. That'd be my preference. There are some hints to that in other places in Scripture. Uh, sufficient enough hints for me to, to conclude that that's exactly what the case was. But the thing that I want you to see for the purpose of our message this morning is that God is showing first and foremost how he changed things. Not just created. How he changed things. There's very little that the Bible says God created in Genesis 1. Most of it, it says that he formed. In other words, are formed or made. In other words, if somebody builds a house, they don't create a house because they didn't start with the absence of raw materials. The fact that they used raw materials to create or fashion a house, maybe your house, a dream house, whatever the case is, then we can say that they made it, but it's not the same as creating it. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says God created the heavens and the earth. Most everything else after that he makes, with the exception of the animals. He created the great fish and the whales and the, the fish of the sea and, and things like that. Life he created. That wasn't here. But everything else he made or fashioned with his hands in some form or another. So it says how God did that. It says how God made or remade the earth, literally. And God said, verse 3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. Verse 4, and God saw the light that it was good. I want you to notice the first thing God tells us about creation or the creation of the world as we know it, the world of mankind, is that he made it with words. God said, let there be light. Notice God didn't see anything until after he said it. Now, why is that important? You go through verse after verse in this, uh, this first chapter, you'll find out that there are ten times that it says the phrase is used, and God said. Why would God want to dictate that to Moses? Why wouldn't God just say, now Moses, I know it's tough for you to write. So let's just summarize everything. In the beginning, I spoke and made everything. And after that, I created man. Now, folks, you could, you could summarize the whole first chapter of Genesis just that way, and it'd be a whole lot easier. It'd be a whole lot easier for translation. It'd be a whole lot easier for, for um, uh, well, in some ways, for understanding. Why does the Bible tell us? Why did God dictate 
and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Because he wants you to understand how things work. See, it all comes down to verse 26 where God says, and God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Seven times, seven times it mentions and God said concerning the fashioning of the earth and the creation of the animals. One time it says God said in relation to mankind. Two more times it says before the end of the chapter and God said to identify man's purpose on the earth and what belongs to him. Ten times in the first chapter of Genesis And God said. Ten times and God said. Why? Well we know what God's purpose is. God's purpose is to create the earth. The earth of mankind. And give man dominion over it. Give man authority in it. Now we'd have to conclude at the end of the first chapter. Well let's read down into into the second chapter a couple of verses. End of chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all of the work which he has made. And God hadn't made anything since. God made an end of everything that he created. Everything that he made here in in what we call the earth or the world of mankind. And that was it. Everything from that point as far as the creation of the world has ceased. Now we'd have to conclude that at the end of chapter 2 verse 2. Where it says God saw that it was very good. And he made an end of all of the work which he had made. We'd have to conclude a couple of things. Number one. The kingdom of God is on the earth. Right? I mean what else would we call it? What else would we call what God created here on the earth if not the kingdom of God? Secondly, the kingdom of God is very good. There's nothing to hurt mankind. There's no sickness. There's no disease. There's nothing that can bring sorrow in any form whatsoever. So we have to conclude first that the kingdom of God was created on the earth. Secondly, that the kingdom of God includes everything that is good for man and nothing that's harmful. Third, God's plan was that this kingdom of God, which is very good without harm or destruction in any way whatsoever, was intended for man to dominate or have authority in. In other words, God made made Adam as a man under his authority on the earth. God's the creator of the earth. It belongs to him. But Adam was created as one who has authority, the one who has authority here on the earth. Now, is there any any way anybody can argue with those statements? All right, let's think about it a little bit further. The Bible says God can't change. So if the kingdom of God on the earth was intended for man to have authority over and was perfect in the sense that it doesn't produce any harm or any, any destruction or any destructive force in any way whatsoever, how could we possibly conclude that God's plan would be different today than it's identified in the Genesis chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2? How does the church come up with the idea that God makes people sick? If God didn't make sickness in the first six days, by the time he rested on the seventh day and made an end of everything that he made, where did sickness come from? Sure didn't come from him. He's through making stuff. So how do we conclude that tragedy and, and disaster and destruction and all the other stuff that the church says 
uh, church world says that God has got some greater purpose that we can't understand, blah, 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 blah. How does the church come up with that? They sure don't get it from what God dictated about how things are. Do they? Now, again, the question remains, why does the Bible say again and again, why did God say over and over again, and God said? Why did God tell Moses so that mankind would have a record, and God said, ten different times in the first chapter? Because it says in verse 26, let us make man after our image and in our own likeness. The Hebrew word, the original word, uh, the original Hebrew word translated likeness in Genesis 126 literally means an exact, dupl- an exact duplication in kind. We think appearance. We think God's saying, I'm going to make Adam look like me. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, I'm going to make Adam as an exact duplication of me. How is Adam going to know how to operate in the earth if he doesn't know how God made him, if he doesn't know what he's duplicated exactly like? I believe with all of my heart that those initial walks in the garden that God had with Adam in the cool of the day was God saying, let me tell you how things work here. We know that that has to be the case, at least to some degree, because the first two things God tells Adam after he's created is, first, his purpose, and God said, uh, replenish and multiply and and be fruitful and, and so forth, replenish the earth, tells him his purpose. Secondly, it tells him what belongs to him. I've given you all the trees of the field and everything that's here on the earth for you. Every reason, the, the reason why every time it says, and God said, is because God wants man to understand how he is to exercise his authority on the earth. As an exact duplication of God who says what he desires. Who says what he desires. Now, I'll, let, me, let me point something out to you. Uh, turn with me over to Genesis chapter 5 real quickly. Verse 3, it says, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Now, what does that mean? It's the same exact phrase as is used over in Genesis 126. Same exact phrase. What does that mean? Well, we would certainly expect Seth to look like his father Adam, but that's not what it means. It means Seth is an exact duplication in kind from his father. We wouldn't expect Seth to be standing out in the field eating grass like a cow. Why? Because he's Adam's son. Because he's the product of Adam and Eve coming together. He's Adam's seed. In the same way that that God created Adam, God created the reproductive system in mankind so that Adam could reproduce himself to create another one after his own kind. That's the law of Genesis. Everything produces after its own kind. Salamanders don't produce lizards. Lizards don't produce monkeys. And monkeys don't produce human beings. Are you out there? That's the law of Genesis. I was uh, uh, excited to find out that our Secretary of State over the last few days has mentioned the law of Genesis. Talking about the creation of the, the Genesis account of creation. Of course, he was trying to use it to justify global warming expenditures and all that other kind of stuff. But I'm thrilled to find out that he believes in the law of Genesis. I wonder what that's going to do with his evolution friends. I guess we'll see as we go. 
like anybody's going to report it anyway. Okay, back to our story. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1 says over and over again, and God said, because God is showing man how to exercise authority. He's showing Adam that his authority is exercised in the same exact, as an exact duplication in the same way, in the same manner, after the same kind as God exercised his power here on the earth to create everything that we see and, and know around us. So what does he tell Adam? He tells Adam his purpose. He tells Adam what his job is. He says uh, he puts him in the garden to dress and to keep it, to work it, to protect it, to hedge it about. God's purpose is to protect it. Now, folks, if there is no enemy, it'd be easy for us to, to say, well, look at the, the end of the story of creation at the end of chapter 1 and first part of chapter 2. Everything's very good. There's nothing that can harm mankind. And it's easy to get uh, kind of uh, religious on, on the, the, the idea that, well, wouldn't it be great to go back and live like that? Or you can talk about the, the subject of authority. And some people will rise up and they'll say, yeah, but, but it was different back then. Adam didn't have an enemy. Well, sure he did. If he didn't have an enemy, what's he protecting the garden against? The fact that there, the earth was or became without form and void tells me that the enemy's been hard at work. Because God didn't create it that way. Isaiah 45, verse 14, I think it is, says God created the earth. He did not create it in vain, literally without form and void. So something made it to to, uh, become or be in that state. So when he tells Adam, garden, protect the garden, he's saying, use your authority. How do you use authority, God? Same way I used authority or power to create the earth, through my words. Hebrews 11.3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that everything which we see was not made by things which do appear. Well, if they weren't made by things which do appear or things that are seen, what were they made by? They were made by things that you can't see, which are words. He's showing man, here's how you exercise authority. Here's how you exercise authority. So he gives him a command. He said, you can eat of every tree of the garden except the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. Now we know in chapter 3 what the story develops to. Chapter 3 tells us about the serpent who comes. Satan takes the embodiment of the serpent. Satan, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but you remember in John chapter 10, Jesus said, uh, well, let me, let me just read it to you. Rather than quote it, I might miss some of it. And so let me, let me read this to you. Jesus is talking in John chapter 10 about the devil and the way the devil operates as uh, instead of how he operated and his legal right to operate here in the earth. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same, same as a thief and a robber. He's talking about Satan coming in at creation. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. What's the door he's talking about? The door he's talking about is very simply the legal ride into the earth, which was to be born into it. That's why the virgin birth is so important, folks. I know some people have a hard time with it, and so they just kind of discount the story and make it a minor issue. But it's a huge issue. Because without the virgin birth, without Mary being a virgin and the mother of Jesus, then Jesus could not be born into the earth independent or separate from sin. Because sin passed upon all mankind. And without being born literally as a baby into the earth, then he would be an illegal 
trespasser, an illegal alien, if you will, just like Satan was. Satan couldn't operate. Satan was a, a spirit being who had no place in the earth because man is the one that had authority over the earth. And so Satan had to t- take an embodiment form. He had to take upon himself a physical form of a serpent in order to, to, to have access to this natural realm. That's why demons and evil spirits try to embody people now because without that, they have no expression into this earth. So that's exactly what Satan did. Satan entered in as a thief. He wasn't born into the earth. He had no legal right here. But he, he uh, stole away in, so to speak. <clears throat> and then he began to talk to Adam and Eve. Now the devil spoke to Adam and Eve and, and do, does exactly the same thing, did exactly the same thing in the beginning that he does now with you and me. And that is he challenges what God says. He tries to make you think, tries to make all of us think, that there's a better way other than what God said. He brings their attention to the tree. And Eve says, well, we're not supposed to eat of the tree. God said in the day that we would eat thereof that we would surely die. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, uh, that if in, in most situations, if God was to appear to someone and say, if you do this, you will die, most people are going to try to negotiate. They're going to say, define death. What do you mean? Because they've got the idea. So many people have the idea that you can just kind of fudge on the lines. Well, when it comes to life and death, there's really no fudging. Nor should we even want to get close to the lines. So Eve starts looking at the tree and thinks that it's good. Now, folks, you need to realize Adam is standing right next to her when when she's being tempted. It's not like he comes in from a hard day at work and finds out what she's done. He's standing right there. Can I ask you a question? Since it was his job to guard and protect the garden, why did he not use his words to send the devil packing? He could have. What if Adam had said, wait a minute, you're the one I'm supposed to guard and protect against. Leave this earth and never return. He had authority over all the dominion. He had dominion and authority over all the works of God's hands. He could have sent the devil packing and never, never would have returned. He had the authority to do so. I want you to see what the lack or the, the um, let's use a better word. Notice what his refusal to exercise authority resulted in. Destruction. What does the church's refusal to exercise their authority in today result in? Destruction. And who gets the blame? Well, the church blames God. Church says, well, I, I don't know why God let this happen to me. That's the same thing as Adam after he fell, saying, well, God, I don't know why this happened. Because you didn't do what I told you to do. Because you didn't use the authority that I've taught you to use. You didn't use your words. Instead of using his words to exercising authority, he instead listened. He chose to listen to what the devil had to say, just like Eve did. Because the devil will always throw a carrot out there in front of you saying there's a better way. And if you stick with just what God says, there's so much stuff you're going to miss out on. He told them you'd miss out on being like him, God. God knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God's. And boy, that'd really be something for you to miss out on. Now, the devil always lies to you about what you're missing out on. Now, there was something that they didn't know. They didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. 
And that's what the devil tempts people with. Here's what you'll find out. It's not always the way that God says it is. There's a better way and you'll, you'll, you'll have more fun this way and you'll, you'll miss out on things. If you stick with God, you'll miss out on so many things. And you do. You miss out on the things that cause you heartache and the things you regret later on in your life. Those are the things that you miss out on when you stick with God. You know what Adam found out after he fell? He found out that what God said was exactly right. You know what you're going to find out every time you yield to the devil's voice and follow his temptation? You're going to find out that what God said was exactly right. Can I suggest that we learn that before we make our mistake? We should. So it comes down to authority. It comes down to the use or the lack of use of authority. Now, what happened when Adam fell, when Adam disobeyed God, when he used his mouth to eat of the tree that he was commanded not to eat of? What happened to Adam? Well, he died, just like God said. He didn't die physically. He died spiritually. Now, there's something else about, uh, about this that you need to understand, and that is, uh, let me turn to it real quick. In James chapter 3, It's talking about the tongue. Let's, uh, um, let me just start in verse 1. James chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, about verse 6, I think. It says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. The word offend is literally the word stumble. For in many things we stumble. Every one of us stumbles. And if any man offend or stumbles not in his words... The same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Notice what Jesus or what uh, James is saying by the Holy Ghost. James says the key to the Christian life, the key to living a perfect life is that you control your tongue. He says your body will obey your tongue. Now, folks, that's true where sickness and disease is concerned. It's true where temptation is concerned. Your body will obey your tongue. When temptation comes, what did Jesus do? Jesus spoke. He said, it is written. He confessed the word. He spoke the word. Why? Because of the te- that way the temptation doesn't have any control over you because your body will follow the direction of your tongue. Then he gives an example beginning in verse 3. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths. That they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships which though they be so great or large. And are driven of fierce winds. Yet they are turned about with a very small helm. Whithersoever the governor listeth. Now what's the example that he's using here? He's using two illustrations. Horses that are bigger than stronger than man can be turned around by something in its mouth. Which is a type of the tongue. Ships that are so great. That are on the sea and are able to, to withstand waves and winds and, 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 you know, extreme conditions. They're turned about with the smallest member of the ship and that is the rudder. Which is a type of the tongue. He's saying your body will obey your tongue. A man's life will obey his words. Verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. What the example he's using there is even the smallest step or stumbling from what God's word says will create a situation that gets completely out of hand like a fire you can't control. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. 
Now let me keep reading. Verse 7. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. Verse 8. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Can I ask you a question? When did the tongue become that? Was it that way when God created Adam and said it's very good? So what is a part of spiritual death that took place in Adam when he fell in the Garden of Eden? He lost control of his tongue. The law of sin and death, the spiritual death that he was then born into because of his disobedience to God, that law of sin and death then became the controller of his tongue. So what is the knowledge of good and evil? That's the tree that he ate of. That's the tree that he was commanded not to eat of and the one that he disobeyed God and did eat of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the knowledge of good and evil? It's the knowledge or the experience of a tongue that is not controlled by the spirit. It's a tongue that speaks curses instead of blessings. It's a tongue that speaks in contrast or in contradiction to God's words and the power of God's words and brings destruction into life and the world that we live in instead of the peace and the goodness after God's kind that man was created to to duplicate. Are you out there? So Adam failed to exercise authority when he failed to use his words to withstand the devil. And as a result, he died spiritually and lost control of his tongue. Folks, man exercises authority through the words of his mouth. Through the words of his mouth. Now turn with me over to, to uh, Matthew chapter. Uh, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 8. I may refer to a couple of verses before we get there. But turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to start in chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. And then skip over to chapter 8 and and something that happened. Jesus in his uh, teaching the people, he said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Notice it comes down to hearing the word and doing the word. Remember in um, Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is telling the the parable of the sower sowing the word. He said everything about the kingdom of God works this way. Now remember the kingdom of God is what was created in Genesis 1 1 or 1 chapter 1. The kingdom of God, when everything was very good before there was any presence of sin, that's what God created and made on the earth that man was in charge of and had authority over. Jesus said the keys to everything, uh, the keys to understanding everything about the kingdom of God is understanding the story or the parable of the sower sowing the word. It all comes down to take heed what you hear. It all comes down to producing good seed or planting good seed in good ground through your words. And your words, the words that you speak, will be affected by the words that you hear. So take heed what you hear. Give ear to God's words and plant those by saying them, by speaking the word, so that then you can have a good harvest. Jesus said everything about the kingdom of God works that way. Everything. Well, that goes back to the beginning. Apparently, in Jesus' understanding, the way things work in the kingdom of God when he was here on the earth hadn't changed from the way God created the earth to begin with when we know that he made the kingdom of God to begin with. Still works the same way. Hearing the word of God and speaking it with your mouth. So Jesus now is saying, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, again, this is Matthew seven twenty four, 
and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the, say, the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not. Notice it's not just hearing, it's acting on the word. Now the best way you can ever act on the word is to say it. There may be other things that you can do as well. For example, tithing. You could say you're a tither and not do it, and that wouldn't help you. But a part of tithing is, is the words that you speak when you bring your, the tenth of your increase into the storehouse. It's not just the action itself. It's the words, the words of faith, the word of God spoken in faith over what the action that you're taking with your money. So everyone that heareth these sayings and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, same rain, and the floods came, same floods. And the winds blew, same winds, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What's he saying? He's saying acting on the word of God by speaking what God says and then taking whatever action that it directs you to take will make the difference in standing or falling in the storms of life. Being a doer of the word makes the difference in whether you're going to succeed or fail. Makes the difference whether you're going to have blessings or curses. Makes the difference in whether you're going to have life or death. Makes the difference in whether you're going to have good things or destructive things. What's he saying? Jesus is saying the same thing that God said in Genesis chapter 1. Man is given to exercise authority through the words of his mouth and the actions that he takes in line with God's word. Now, notice the next few verses. Most times people stop reading there in chapter 7, but I want you to see the next two verses. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine. Notice they're not astonished at him. I think the church world has painted the picture that wherever Jesus went, he awed people and amazed them because they thought, wow, what power this guy has. But notice what it says the people were amazed at. Not him, his teaching. The people were amazed at his doctrine or astonished at his doctrine for or because. Here's why they were amazed and astonished. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now the way the King James translates that, it makes us think that Jesus impressed everybody because he showed them that he had authority on the earth. Well, there's no question Jesus had authority on the earth. But that's not what these verses say. The word one is in italics. It means the translators added it. It literally says, for he taught them as having authority. These two words, as having authority, literally means, to how, literally means how to hold authority. And not as the scribes. See, if the people were impressed because Jesus had authority, they wouldn't have been astonished at his doctrine. They would have been astonished at him. The fact that it says they were astonished at his doctrine tells us that there was the teaching. Tells us it was the teaching that they were amazed at. And not just Jesus the guy. Now, what about his teaching would amaze them? Because Jesus taught that man had authority on the earth. And the scribes sure didn't teach that. Yet the law and the prophets teach that. But then, as, in, as today, mankind seems to let go of that truth and, and just puts everything off on God. Whatever you will, you know, let it be done. Isn't it interesting to know, notice that in Genesis chapter 1, where God puts man in charge and says, uh, subdue the earth, your job is to su- subdue or control the earth. God didn't say, wait and see what happens and just go with it. 
No, your job, Adam, because you've been given dominion over the earth, is to, for you to exercise control, you to exercise authority. If things aren't the way you want them to be, don't cry unto me about it. You're the one with authority. If it's not the way you want it to be, if it's not the way that I made it to be, then you change it. Jesus seems to be teaching something very similar. The people were amazed at Jesus' doctrine because he taught them how or the manner to hold authority. And some people got it. Some people understood. Chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority. Now, folks, I would submit to you that he's in the same position that Adam was. Adam was a man under God's authority. This is a man. The centurion is a man under Roman authority. But he understands because of his military position, he understands how authority works. He says, for I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And then he concludes in verse 13, Go your way as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now what is Jesus impressed with? Jesus said, I haven't found this great a faith in all of Israel. Then he goes through, we didn't read those verses of scripture, but he says, and people with this kind of faith will come and replace the Jews that are relying on the law of Moses. They'll be the ones that sit with my father in heaven instead of the ones that are relying on the old way of doing things. What is Jesus amazed at? Jesus marvels because of his faith. He says, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, if there's something that this guy understood that caused him to have great faith, faith is the same now as faith was in Jesus' day. So you and I can have the same great faith that he had and bless God and please God in the same manner. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Jesus is very pleased by this guy's faith. He commends the greatness of his faith, strength of his faith, literally. And your faith and my faith operating in the same way can have the same results and bring about the same pleasing uh, condition for God. What was it this man understood that nobody else seemed to, or very few seemed to get? What did he understand? Well, we could say, and most of the church world will, will stop at this, they'll say, well, he recognized that Jesus had authority. Well, folks, I would submit to you that everybody that came to Jesus for healing recognized he had authority. Otherwise, why are they coming? But not everybody that came to Jesus for healing got healed. Or at least we assume that's the case because like in the crowds in Mark chapter 6, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 5, where the crowd is uh, pressing on Jesus, the woman with the issue of blood touches him and receives healing for her body because she reached out in faith. When Jesus said, who touched me, the disciples are kind of amazed at the question because everybody's trying to touch him. Everybody that can get close enough to touch him is touching him. I just can't have a hard time believing that the woman with the issue of blood was the only sick person in that crowd. If so, that's the first crowd, the first multitude that Jesus ever had where there was only one sick person. 
I think there are other, a lot of other sick people too. Maybe people that are in even more dire circumstances than the woman with the issue of blood. But the fact that she reached out and touched him in faith when they did not made the difference in what she received and what they did not get. Jesus always responds to faith. So just because somebody had heard of Jesus, just, I assume that everybody in Mark chapter 5 had heard of Jesus and that's why they came just like the woman with the issue of blood. Not everybody that heard of Jesus got anything from him. It still took faith, even though Jesus had the Spirit of God without measure, even though he was sent to heal anyone and everyone that would receive. It still comes down to the choice of the individual, the determination of the will on the part of the individual to receive. And so Jesus sees something about this guy that we cannot just say he knew Jesus had authority because knowing Jesus had authority would not make the difference in him or his servant being healed. What did this man understand? He said, I'm a man under, under authority. I understand authority, in other words. What did he understand about authority? He understood very simply this. Authority is exercised through words. He said, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. Just speak the word only. Because I know how authority works. You speak the command. And the power behind that command, the power behind those words, will make it to happen. It'll make it come to pass. That's what he understood. That's what Jesus is amazed at. That's what Jesus commends. This guy has faith that's greater than anybody I've ever seen. Up to that point in time, at least. He said he believes that the word carries power. Isn't that exactly how things started in Genesis chapter 1? Do you remember Mark chapter 11 where Jesus describes faith? Verse 23. Mark chapter 11 verse 23. Jesus said. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. How is it that we are to believe that what we say will come to pass? If you don't understand authority you never will believe that. If you don't understand that authority is exercised through words, the authority in the kingdom of God is exercised through words, you'll never believe that your words will come to pass. And you'll be very weak in faith all your life. But the people who make faith work for them are the ones that come to understand that when I speak, my words come to pass because I've been given authority in the name of Jesus. Now turn back with me to John chapter 14. We want to come full circle on this. John chapter 14. I want to start with the same verses that we read earlier. But this time, instead of hammering on call for, require, and demand for the word ask, I'm going to change it up a little bit. Hope you'll understand it better. John chapter 14, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or my name... The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall speak in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What's he talking about? He's talking about the exercise of authority. The one thing that the Lord impressed upon me when I started this series some weeks ago, however many it's been, 
is that the name of Jesus is usually looked at, and I was guilty of it myself, we usually look at the use of the name of Jesus as an event. We look at Acts chapter 3 where Peter and John look at the cripple at the gate, uh, the beautiful gate of the temple, and he, he said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he lifted him up and his feet and ankle bones received strength. And the man leaping up and walked and praised God and so forth. We look at the use of the name of Jesus as a single event. When the Bible speaks of being in the name of Jesus for everybody that's been born again. The Bible says if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you are in Christ. That means you have been baptized into the name of Jesus. You can't be a child of God without being in the name of Jesus. So when Jesus is talking about the use of his name, he's not just talking about events. We know that there are events and there are times where the Holy Ghost will prompt you, like Acts 3, prompt someone to utilize the power in the name for for the benefit of someone else. But when Jesus is talking about the use of his name to do the works that he did, he's talking about this is because I'm going to the Father. This is because I'm creating a relationship with God for you. I'm not just the one that's going to have a relationship with God from this point. You've got one. Paul wrote to the church and said, whatever you do, do in the name of Jesus. Well, when you go to work, do you sit down at your desk and say, I signed this paper in the name of Jesus? Well, no, people would think you had not if they heard you doing stuff like that. But because you're in Christ and this is the work of your hands, this is the job that you have, you are to do that job in the name of Jesus. To recognize that you have supernatural authority, you have supernatural benefits, you have the blessing of God on your life, and that this is not just an average person doing an ordinary job. I've got the blessing of God to do the job he's given me to do. Whatever that job is. Whether it's preaching, or whether it's working as a mechanic, Or whatever your job is. You do it in the name of Jesus. In everything you do, the Bible says, do all in the name of Jesus. How can we do that? Because we are already in the name of Jesus. We're already in Christ. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. Jesus is with God and we are in him, so we're with God. In every moment of every day. So when Jesus is saying doing the works that he did, said that we would do the works that he did, a new place of authority, he's saying that place of authority is because of your relationship with God. Not because you have some special strong faith that nobody else has. And I think that's one thing that the devil has used to keep people out of the blessings of God. Whosoever believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. The devil will whisper in our ear and say, well, you don't really believe. Other people might. We see other people doing the works of Jesus, but you don't. And that means you don't believe. Well, if you're in Christ, you already are a believer. And whatsoever you shall speak in my name, I will do. That's why we see in the book of Acts where signs and wonders are being done and nobody ever says the name of Jesus. Because they're already in Christ. Using the magic phrase in the name of Jesus is not what puts Jesus to work. He sees you and knows who you are already. And when we realize that when we speak, we're exercising authority because we're in Christ, our words come to pass. Let me go a little bit further. You have as much authority in your life to subdue the works of the devil as Adam had in the Garden of Eden. In fact, you have more.
Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or believeth on my name, the works that I do. By the way, let me, let me make this comment. I don't want to take a long time on it. But for an unbeliever, an unbeliever believes on the name of Jesus to be saved. A believer, somebody that's already a child of God, believes in the name of Jesus for everything else that he does. So that's the difference that the Bible makes a distinction between believing on him and believing in him. Unsaved people believe on him to become saved. But once you're saved, everything that you do is believing in him because you accepted the, the, tr- the truth, the fact that we are in Christ. So he said, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father. Notice he's saying, here's what the unsaved will do when they get saved. All it takes is becoming saved, believing on his name. That's how you get saved. So notice that's what he's saying. He's saying the unsaved, which is what the, the, the disciples, the apostles were at that point in time. The unsaved, by believing on his name, gained the power, the authority, the position to do the same works that Jesus did here on the earth. And whatsoever you shall speak in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall speak anything in my name, I will do it. John fifteen seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall speak what you will. Why? Because you're in authority. Now, you're not in authority in my life. What you say about my life won't matter. But what you say about yours will. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall speak what you will and it shall be done unto you. What is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about going to the Father and asking for stuff. He's talking about you and the exercise of your authority in your own life. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Let me stop here for a minute and read a couple of scriptures to you. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 14 says, A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. So what fruit is Jesus talking about here? Same fruit that's spoken of in Scripture. A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 2 says, A man shall eat good by the fruit of his mouth. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 20 says, A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. So when Jesus is talking about producing fruit, what kind of fruit do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the fruit that comes through the exercise of authority by the words that you speak. Are you out there? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall speak what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. We could say it this way. We could change the words and wouldn't change the meaning a bit. Herein is my Father glorified that your words come to pass. That your words show the exercise of your authority in your life. So shall you be my disciples. Verse 26. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. He's talking about the result of the words spoken, words of God's words spoken with authority in your own life. Because of the position of authority you have through Jesus' sacrifice. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain. In other words, the devil's not going to steal the words of your mouth. The things that come as a result of the words of your mouth. Because you're the one that has authority. You remember in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, the disciples come back, the 70 come back, and they found out that uh, even the devils are subject to them in the name of Jesus. 
even though Jesus had not said anything about casting out devils when he sent them out. Jesus said in Luke 10, 19, he said, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. I got to thinking here recently, why in the world would Jesus emphasize the no harm coming to you? What was Jesus' purpose in, actually, in, in uh, uh, emphasizing the part about no harm shall come unto you? And there's only one conclusion I can draw. And that is, he wants to make sure that you know you don't have anything to be afraid of from the devil. You don't have to be afraid of the devil stealing your stuff. You don't have to be afraid of the devil bringing sickness or disease on you. You don't have anything to be afraid of. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be attacked. doesn't mean he won't try. But if he does try, you solve that problem by exercising authority through the words of your mouth, through the things that you say. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall speak to the Father in my name, he will give it you. See, folks, when you understand the place of authority that Jesus taught, when you understand the place of authority that Jesus said we had because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, then your prayer life becomes a whole lot less, God, please give me something. Then it does, Father, in the name of Jesus, the word says I have this, so I'm making a claim on it. Finally, John chapter 16, verse 23, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall speak to the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Up till now you have spoken nothing in my name. Speak, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Now, folks, you can't call for or require or demand anything without speaking. Can you? So when Jesus is using this word that means call for or require or demand, he's saying exactly what I've, I've just translated this to be. He's saying whatever you say to the Father is what the Father will do to you. Isn't that exactly what God said in Numbers chapter 14 when the children of Israel had failed to uh, believe the promise of God to go into the promised land? He said, here is the unchanging law of God, the eternal law of God, the oracle of God. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. He didn't say, as you have asked me to do, I will do unto you. He said, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Folks, that is the unchanging law that God has established in the earth when he gave man authority here. Sure, the devil's here. Sure, the law of sin and death is in operation. But you can exercise authority over every part of it. You can undo what the devil has wrought in your life. You can bring restoration. You can bring healing. You can bring health. You can bring blessing. You can change your circumstances through the words of your mouth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that you've given us authority. You've given us authority over all the devil's power. You've given us authority to make choices according to our will in your life, in our lives. We can choose whether to exercise authority to bring the blessings that you've spoken in your word to pass. But, oh, Father, we know that our words also work negatively against us when we choose to speak against your word. Father, open our eyes 
to the simple truth that we can have what we say. Open our eyes, Father, to the simple truth that we have authority, not the devil. No matter what the devil says, no matter what circumstances dictate to us, we can change circumstances through the spoken word, through speaking your words. Oh, Father, we love you so much. We thank you. We apologize. We repent for being so dull of hearing, so resistant to the simple truth that when we speak your word, your power is put into play. But no longer. From this day forward, Lord, we will guard the words of our mouths. We will not let any word spoken from our lips contradict what you have to say no matter what the circumstance is no matter what the devil speaks in our ears we choose from this day forward to speak only what we will in line with your word thank you father that we have even greater faith than the centurion because we understand how authority works we understand that we are the one that decides And we take sides with you. In Jesus' precious name, we take sides with you, Lord. Therefore, we declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare that everything we put our hand to prospers. We declare that finances come to us supernaturally in Jesus' name. We declare, Father, that deals are closed, businesses are are, are completed. We claim, Father, in the precious name of Jesus, the prosperity that brings you pleasure. Your word says you delight in the prosperity of your servant. Thank you, Father, that your will is that we walk in health and prosper, even as we renew our minds through your word. We declare, Father, that we're the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. We're blessed coming in and we're blessed going out. We're blessed in the city and the field. We're blessed in the basket and the store. Thank you, Father, that the blessing of God is upon our storehouses, that our investments and retirement accounts are increasing supernaturally. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Father, that every disease, every sickness, every germ, every virus that comes in contact with our bodies dies instantly in the precious and holy name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that even though, even as you have made our bodies to amend and to heal supernaturally, we thank you for an increased work because of our faith in your healing power. Thank you, Father, that we're blessed in every area of life. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And as we speak those blessings into reality, they become a fact. They become a natural and a physical fact. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back and be with us tonight for prayer school and healing school if you can. And you're dismissed.